The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your host, Linda House, Executive Vice President of External Affairs here at the Cancer Support Community. I'm filling in today for Kim Tebaldo, our President and CEO, who is off. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services today are provided at, all, at over 170 locations worldwide, online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org, and also by a telephone helpline, which is 888-793-9355. And I will repeat all of that information later in the show to give you a chance to grab something to write with. You know, with summer in full swing right now, there's a lot of buzz around sun, sun protection, and skin cancer. As a matter of fact, July has even been named National UV Safety Month. On today's show, which is brought to you in part by Celgene, Lilly Oncology, and Onyx, we're focusing specifically on one type of skin cancer that is strongly linked to UV or ultraviolet exposure. And that particular skin cancer is called melanoma. It's also, one of the, it's also the most deadly form of skin cancer. Joining us today is Louise Perkins, who's a PhD, and she is the Chief Science Officer at the Melanoma Research Alliance. Louise has a Ph.D. and a Master's of Science in Biology Chemistry from the University of Michigan. She has conducted postdoctoral studies at Princeton University's Department of Molecular Biology. Louise, thank you so much for being here with us today. My pleasure, Linda. Also here with us is April Salama, who is an MD. She's Assistant Professor of Medicine and Associate Director of Melanoma Clinical Research at Duke University in their Department of Medicine. April is a medical oncologist who specializes in the treatment of patients with skin cancer. And given the location of Duke University, I'm sure that you have a number of folks that that come in and see you based on sun exposure and other um, etiologies. But thank you so much for joining us, April. And we look forward to, to hearing what you have to say to our listeners. Thank you for having me. And last but not least, we have Donna Pient here with us today. And Donna, you are a melanoma survivor and you are also an advisor to the Cancer Support Community's Cancer Experience Registry Melanoma, which will launch in the next couple of months. So we're so glad to have you join us as well, Donna, and thank you for for serving as an advisor to that uh, Experience Registry panel. Thank you. It's it's wonderful to be be able to help um, raise awareness. It's such a privilege. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So I am going to start with you, April, 
So we sometimes hear the general public terms of melanoma and skin cancer, and sometimes those are used interchangeably. You know, I'm wondering if, for our listeners, could you identify what each of these are and uh, clarify the difference in meaning between them? Uh, absolutely. So, you know, I think skin cancer is more of a general term uh, that can refer to, you know, many different types of cancer that, that happen to occur on the skin. I think, you know, the most common types of skin cancer uh, in the U.S. And, and really throughout the world include things like basal cell carcinomas and squamous cell carcinomas. And, and to put that in reference, in, in the U.S., about 3 million uh, people are diagnosed with those each year. And these are highly curable, um, you know, localized cancers that are often treated by a dermatologist and, and tend to grow very, very slowly and, and for most people don't cause a lot of problems. Uh, and that's in uh, a, a big contrast to something like melanoma, which is, while it is a skin cancer because it occurs in the skin cells that carry pigment, um, it's much less common. It only occurs in about uh, 75,000 people a year uh, in the U.S. But as we kind of, uh, you had alluded to, uh, it's much more uh, dangerous and, and can be deadly. And so even though it only accounts for about 5% of all skin cancers, it uh, is responsible for 75% of the deaths due to skin cancer. Um, and even though, um, you know, part of this program in terms of being aware, even melanoma, when we catch it early, is highly curable. So if we catch it before it goes to the lymph nodes, um, it's highly curable uh, nearly 100% of the time. And, and that's why early detection is so important. And I think, you know, something just to clarify for our listeners, when when our listeners hear cancer-related statistics reported every year, because the numbers of the the less um, malignant can- skin cancers um, are so large, it's, it's often that those aren't included in the overall cancer figures. Um, isn't that the case? Isn't that your understanding of the case? That is true. Uh, when sort of official numbers of cancer are reported, you know, we hear statistics about breast cancer and prostate cancer and lung cancer and then melanoma. Um, they, the other sort of more common skin cancers like squamous cell cancer uh, and basal cell cancers are not often included uh, in those numbers. Yep. Thank you for that clarification. Um, Donna, can you just tell us your story Um when and how were you diagnosed with, with your type of skin cancer? And um, just kind of walk us through what that experience has been like for you. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, my melanoma journey uh, pretty much began about six months prior to being diagnosed on November 21st, 2011. I noticed a mole on my upper left side that seemed to change abruptly. And, and then over time, it began to itch and bleed, you know, periodically. I honestly did not understand the, the you know, the specifics of melanoma. And I remember Googling skin cancer, but at the time, my mole just didn't fit the ABCDEF uh, guidelines of the skin uh, cancer organization because my mole was symmetrical and one color and with even borders. So I thought, eh, no need to worry to have it get, or have it get checked. So I began, to get, but I, well, I began to get nervous when I noticed the mole was increasingly itchy and was evolving in size and shape. And it appeared to be scarily with uneven borders. This was all in the time of six months. Then when I went to my family doctor, had the mole shaved, the physician assistant stated that, eh, eh, 
she wasn't, you know, she didn't like the fact that I had black spot under the mole, but she said, I have no need to worry about it. Let's not worry about it. So I didn't, and I was shocked. But four days later that I, heard, you know, got the phone call, I'm so sorry, you have malignant melanoma. And let me tell you, those words forever changed my life. So, so what? So what was the time frame between the time when you first started started to notice the change in the mole and when um, you? I, I, I want to say it was about at, at least six months. I'm trying to. Mm-hmm. I tried to go back because I didn't. I wasn't educated on on melanoma. Um, I just really downplayed it. And you know, to, to be honest, I was so busy with uh, you know running a household, working full time, um, and going to, to, uh, to college online um, or, you know, to earn a degree in medical billing and coding. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, you know, when I was uh, diagnosed, I'm like, and having, having to learn about the, the um, cancer registry, I remember recalling, oh, no, now I'm, now I'm part of the cancer registry. Um, you know, <laughs> it's just, you know, such a shock. When, you, when you're diagnosed with that. And I think that's why it's so important for me to raise awareness because there's even, even today, after talking so many years later to people, I continue to do that, um, I continue to, to uh, meet people that don't understand. And I'm just baffled because of all the technology we have and, you know, media and all, is people are just still not aware. Mm-hmm. So, and, tell, and tell us, how are you today? Uh, you know what? I, I feel... Now, over a year has passed since my treatment, so I, since I had to stop treatment. I feel so much better, but I continue to live daily with vertigo, and, and my, I have right foot numbness and fatigue, and, and I also have like a, what they call a, a cognitive interference. That they believe it's from the toxic, toxicity of the interferon treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, I had too much. Uh, so, but I'm very, very grateful to be alive, and, and I just live each day to the fullest because Melanoma is the beast, and it's, it, you know, it's said, it's like always lurking, you know, so I'm just so thrilled at, to be able to, to say that I'm two and, two and a half years of no evidence of disease, so I'm just like celebrating each day. That's great. Congratulations, and well, thank, thank you, you for sharing. Thank you. thank you for sharing your experience with us so that others can learn as well. Yeah, Louise, I really hope I'm gonna, I, that's my uh, thing to, to really raise awareness to, so that no one else has to walk this journey. Yeah, it's so important, and we're going to get into some specific ways of, of um, raising awareness and, and um, actions that people can take later in the show, so I'm going to count on you to help bring some of that to light for us. Sure, thank you. So, Louise, I'm going to pivot to you um, now and ask if you could just tell our listeners a little more about the Melanoma Research Alliance. What kind of work are you doing in the melanoma space? How can people find you? What resources you might have to offer? Sure, uh, no problem. So the Melanoma Research Alliance is uh, a nonprofit that was established in 2007 um, by a patient, Deborah Black, shortly after her diagnosis with melanoma. Uh, she and her husband, Leon, created the MRA because there was really very little going on in the active research area, and it seemed like there were some researchers who were kind of toiling away in dark closets but um, there really wasn't a lot of funding to support the science that needed to be done to advance the field. Um, so flash forward from 2007 when we were created to now, MRA is now the largest private funder of melanoma research, um, supporting over 200 scientists in 14 countries around the world. We 
Uh, the main thing we do is to fund research. We do have activities in the uh, policy space and awareness space, but uh, really who we are is a, is a research funder. That's what we're known for. Um, in the area of that, one of the things that there are a couple of things that set us apart that um, people who are interested in uh, helping to fight the fight against melanoma may uh, want to know. Um, we're fortunate that because of uh, a gift we have that covers our operating expenses, 100% of public donations go directly to the research. So it's a great way to make uh, money to fight this cause, go a really long way. And then within the research area, um, I mean, it's a very uh, um, interesting and amazing time for melanoma research and the medical and scientific work that we've supported is really starting to pay off in a lot of exciting news for new treatments that are really making their way to patients and, and have uh, be, beginning in 2011 to now. And I think we'll have some time to talk about those um, in a little bit. Yeah, and it's very exciting. I, I It seems to me that, that I know definitely this year at the um, American Society of clinical oncology meeting in Chicago, and we covered a little bit of, of that particular meeting, there was a lot of melanoma and breakthroughs for melanoma discussed. It feels like I remember even the 2013 meeting also had a number of breakthroughs in melanoma really rose to the top of what were some of the scientific breakthroughs for cancer at that particular meeting as well. No, definitely. Oh, definitely. And, and, I mean, I would say yeah, melanoma is definitely a case study for the future of cancer research. Um, the amazing progress that's been made in melanoma, both with you know, so-called molecularly targeted agents, things that hit a particular um, um, protein or gene that's gone wrong in your cancer cell, those are, are tested and proven in melanoma. We have a lot more to do to understand how to uh, either modulate or overcome the resistance that can develop to those very interesting drugs. Likewise, in this uh, new and exciting field called immunotherapy, which we've put about a quarter of our $60 million portfolio into, um, those investments in immunotherapy are really starting to pay off, and these new immunotherapeutic approaches are coming forward not just in melanoma, which is really, you know, it's really great that that's where they're being proven first, but also in a lot of other cancers, including lung cancer and kidney cancer, bladder cancer, some blood cancers. I think when we look back um, from the future to now, we'll say that 2014 was really the year that everything changed and these mm-hmm. treatments became much more mainstream and available. And I think it's just going to open up a whole new area for melanoma patients and many, many others. Yeah, that's great news for patients. Um, This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We do have to step away for a quick commercial break, but when we're back, we'll hear more from our guests, both on safe skin behaviors, if you will, as well as some of the medical breakthroughs that we've just alluded to in this segment. Thank you very much, and please come back right after this commercial break. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. 
The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. We're back with Frankly Speaking About Cancer, sponsored in part today by ASI, Genentech, and Amgen. Today we're talking about melanoma, and I am joined by three experts in this, in this particular field. Um, Louise Perkins, who is a, a PhD and the Chief Science Officer at the Melanoma Research Alliance. I'm also joined by April Salama, who is an MD, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Associate Director of Melanoma Clinical Research at Duke University in their Department of Medicine. And then also Donna Pient, who is here with us today, and she is a melanoma survivor and is the patient advisor to the Cancer Support Community's Patient Experience Registry. So thank you again for being here with us today. And in this particular segment, I'd like to talk about skin cancer behavior, skin cancer prevention, and address some of the myths that may currently exist around sun protection. So, Louise, I'm going to start with you. And for, you know, my generation, um, you know, having a healthy glow was an important part of summer. And I, I you know, confess to participating in unhealthy behaviors um, at, at that particular time in my life. But, you know, can you talk to us a little bit about res- what research is really telling us about tanning and the risk of cancer and, and um, tanning, whether it's through the sunlight or through tanning beds. Sure. And I mean, like you, I have to, I have that confession as well. You know, despite my extremely fair complexion, uh, I was one of those people who sat out under the sun with aluminum foil and baby oil and tried to actually turn my very fair skin into something it was never, ever going to be. And I, I think a lot of us do have the impression that that, that, Glow is healthy, but it is anything but. And I think that's a really important message to get across to people. 
um, the um, the fact is that ultraviolet radiation, whether it's coming from the sun or whether it's coming from tanning beds, and especially if it's coming from tanning beds, I would say it's known to be the primary risk factor for melanoma. You can look at the scientific data when people delve deeply inside melanoma cancer cells and see the footprints of UV damage all over that. It's quite clear that it's a carcinogen. In other words, it causes cancer and it damages the skin cells. There have been studies that show that uh, your lifetime risk for melanoma doubles if you have more than five sunburns. Um, And uh, there's just overwhelming evidence that sunburns are a significant risk for melanoma. Uh, In fact, if you think about it, uh, what is a tan? A tan is the evidence that there's been sun damage to the skin. And that's just something you really want to avoid. Thinking about um, indoor tanning devices, tanning beds, and that sort of thing, um, these are, I mean, these are a real problem, uh, a known and significant health threat. And um, there's a lot of data that indicates that the use of a sunbed um, before the age of 35 is associated with a 75% increased risk of melanoma. Uh, They eliminate um, both uh, so-called UVA and UVB radiation both of which damage skin. It can cause skin cancer, cancer, and if you don't feel like that's close enough to worry about, lead to premature aging, and who wants those wrinkles? Um, so uh, recently, um, they were reclassified, these tanning beds, from low-risk to moderate-risk devices by the FDA, which is important, and a number of states are coming through with uh, various uh, bans on their use. Um, nine states have indoor um, tanning bed bans for those under 18. So the bottom line, stay out of the sun, be active outdoors, be safe while you're doing it. April, I'd like for you to pick up where Louise has just left off. And in particular, people talk about getting a base tan before going on a vacation or if they're trying to get a jump start on summer. Um, you know, the, the belief is that if they have a base tan, they wouldn't get burned later when they are in the sun. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that. Is that fact or fiction? So that's a, that's a great question because that's one of uh, those myths that's, that's kind of been perpetuated. And uh, to build on what uh, Louise was uh, saying and that really there is no, you know, such thing as a safe tan and, and tan tanning and the development of that pigment or what we call melanin uh, is just a, a response to injury. So anytime we're seeing, you know, your skin tanning, that is your skin's response to injury. And so a base tan uh, does not really provide your skin with any significant uh, protection uh, from future sun exposure. Um, and it's, it's, you know, felt to be dangerous. And so I would echo what uh, Louise has said and that uh, being uh, protected under the sun is, is really the safe thing to do and, and that's using sun, you know, good sun protective behavior and I know we're going to talk about that a little bit more but getting a base tan is definitely not the way to do that. So why don't we roll into sunscreen and sunscreen labels and I know they can be confusing and we've, we've, we've heard over time you know, conflicting information about what kind to buy and what kind not to buy. So could you just explain to our listeners um, you know, some of the common terms we hear, SPV, UVA, UVB, you know, anything else that we should you know, what are those things, first of all, and then what should we be thinking about as worth either purchasing or applying or reapplying sunscreen? Uh, absolutely. And it's something I think as people have become, you know, fortunately more aware of, of 
skin cancer and melanoma and sun protection, that the marketing is there, but then it becomes kind of ever complex about uh, what you need to get and is more really better or is more uh, just more. And so uh, talking about some of the basic definitions uh, and just talking about sort of uh, sun exposure and and ultraviolet rays and, and radiation, and that really comes in two main forms, uh, and that's so the UVB rays, uh, which we think of as sort of the chief rays that are related to burning, uh, and historically that was thought to really sort of be the the more dangerous you know form of, of radiation. Uh, we now know that that's not true, and that UVA rays are also important, uh, and they cause uh, cause aging, and also uh, important and and can contributing to skin cancer. So both types of UV rays are important, and we need sunscreens uh, that can protect us against both of them. And that's partly where the SPF, which stands for sun protection factor, uh, comes in, although it's largely a number that's assigned based on the degree of UVB protection that a particular sunscreen uh, provides. And so it, it kind of gives a measure of how effective it is in preventing burning from those UVB uh, rays. Uh, but what's important now is, you know, looking for a sunscreen that's sort of broad spectrum, uh, so both UVA and UVB. And then when you go and sort of look at the numbers, you know, patients will ask me, you know, is 100 better than 50? Should I, you know, what number should I be getting? And and the numbers can be confusing because it's not really a one-to-one ratio. So an SPF of 30 does not provide double the protection of an SPF of 15. Um, so I usually recommend at least an SPF of 30, which blocks about 97% of UVB rays. Uh, in comparison, you know, SPF of 50, you know, blocks about 98 or close to maybe 99%. And so going above SPF 50, um, is, there's probably not much added benefit in it. Um, you know, I usually tell my patients anywhere between sort of SPF uh, 30, SPF 50. Uh, we talk about in a cream, you know, sunscreen applying about an ounce, which is about a shot glass uh, worth of, of sunscreen to expose skin before you actually go out into the sun. So I, I find that's a mis- uh, kind of a mistake people make. They get out and then they apply sunscreen, but you really need to be applying it sort of 15 to 30 minutes before you go out into the sun and then reapplying every couple of hours. Um, and certainly after swimming or heavy sweating or exercise or, or things like that. Um, and then I think also wearing sunscreen really every day is an important thing. So not just in the summer months, it's on our mind, it's hot, but you really get UV exposure every day, even on, you know, cloudy days or, or rainy days. Well, and, I, and, you know, one of the things I wanted to, to touch on with you talking about sunscreen in particular as well is just because a sunscreen indicates on the label that it is waterproof doesn't mean that it doesn't have to be reapplied after going into the pool or having heavy exercise. Right, and it's hard to speak. I think on every formulation is a little bit different, but um, you know some may be more water water resistant than others. But still, we would recommend you know reapplying um, every few hours when you're out in the sun and and in the water. And April, could you touch on one other thing? When you're talking about UVA and UVB, one of the things that we haven't really talked about, um, we've talked about skin protection, but we haven't talked about protecting the eyes. And I know over the last few years that I've read more about sunglasses and making sure that sunglasses protect as well UVA and I believe UVB. Is that correct? 
You know, I I would have to look at specific sunglasses, um, but yes, we do recommend uh, wearing sunglasses. Often there's a little uh, sticker that says UV uh, protection. And so I know that we're going to spend some time in the next segment talking about um, the signs and symptoms and diagnosis of, of melanoma. So I want to just give our listeners a heads up to you know, maybe grab a piece of paper and a pencil so that you can take notes. I think this is going to be a particularly important segment as we move into sharing um, exact information and instructions on how you can monitor your skin. You know, the other thing I want to make sure and touch on um, April and Louise as well, and Louise, you mentioned this in your early comments, that there are new diagnostic tools that can actually um, provide a visual of the level of damage that patients have had to their skin by uh, by the sun. So I just want you to, to hold me accountable to making sure that we cover those two areas in the next segment. And we will be right back after a short break. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we look forward to um, addressing these issues in the next segment. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help. And many of the people in their lives want to help, but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. 
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is sponsored in part by AstraZeneca, Millennium, the Takeda Oncology Company, and Purdue Pharma. My name is Linda House. I'm the Executive Vice President for External Affairs here at the Cancer Support Community, and I am filling in for Kim Tebaldo, who is our President and CEO and the normal host of this show, but she happens to be off today. So in this segment, we are going to go over melanoma, the diagnosis and treatment of melanoma, and I am joined today by Louise Perkins, who is the Chief Science Officer at the Melanoma Research Alliance, and also by April Salama, who is the medical, I'm sorry, the Assistant Professor of Medicine and Associate Director of Melanoma Clinical Research at Duke University, and then also Donna Piant, who is a melanoma survivor and who is also the patient advisor for the Cancer Support Community's Cancer Experience Registry. So we've got a a lot of information to cover in this particular segment. April, I'm going to start with you. We heard Donna talk a little bit about the ABC guidelines of melanoma, but can you talk a little bit more about what are the signs and symptoms of melanoma and what our listeners should be looking for? Yes, uh, I think so. So Donna had a great point in talking about the the ABC uh, criteria, which just to review briefly for people is the A is asymmetry, which just means that each half of the mole kind of look like the other half. B are the irregular borders that Donna was talking about. Uh, C refers to color, which melanomas can be a variety of colors and sometimes have really no color at all, which is something that people uh, don't know. Uh, D stands for diameter, which we talk about something being around the size of a pencil eraser. Uh, And then E is the evolving, as Donna talked about with her melanoma, that it it began to change. Uh, But I think also what, what Donna touched on is that your melanoma, a melanoma may have some or or none of these uh, particular signs, and so it can be particularly difficult uh, at times to diagnose. I think our dermatologists uh, talk about the ugly duckling mole, so if there's something there that really doesn't look like other freckles or moles that you have and you're worried about it, uh, that's something that you should point out to your doctor. Um, I think thinking about melanoma and other sites that we don't always think of, so things like under your fingers, uh, fingernails, toes and toenails, and on the palms and soles of your feet, um, because we know that even though sun exposure is a, is a big risk factor for melanoma, melanomas can certainly occur on, on parts of the body that don't see a lot of sun exposure, and so that's something to take into consideration. Uh, when we talk about symptoms, uh, often there aren't any, uh, but certainly the itching or the bleeding, uh, and Donna mentioned that with her, with her melanoma, but that can sometimes be something you know patients will tell us about. Uh, other times, melanoma can look like a bruise that just doesn't heal, uh, and so that's something we also uh, talk to our patients about. You know, so what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that the annual skin exams are critical for, for, for patients, especially if you are fair-skinned or if you feel like you're at a risk of um, having a type of skin cancer. So the real experts who are used to seeing skin discolorations um, and anomalies in the skin can take a look at that and detect cancers as early as possible. So as, as you're, you're talking to our listeners about ways in which they could prepare and make the most of their dermatology appointments, what advice would you give them? So I would advise sort of before you go to to think about what your concerns are and to sort of prioritize your list of what you would like to talk with your doctor about. We all have a lot of 
different skin concerns, uh, but if this is going to be your visit to kind of talk about moles and, and re- review and do a full body skin check to try to really focus on that and perhaps schedule a separate visit to address other, other skin concerns. Uh, certainly doing a self-check and a self-exam before uh, you go and in any areas that you're worried about, you can highlight that to your doctor. And just knowing your family history and, and any other uh, factors that you want to bring up with your doctor as well, I think is always important. Uh, and then pri- prior to your visit for women, particularly removing uh, nail polish from the fingers and toes, uh, because again, that can be a place uh, that melanomas rarely occur, so making sure your doctor can do a good exam. And then when you're there, asking your doctor to go over and talk about what is included in a skin exam and how should you do that, you know, if you're not sure, uh, and really use them as a resource and, and get good information from them. You know, dermatologists are really the experts in the skin, and, and they're there uh, to really help you as a patient. And can you just remind the listeners, um, are, there, are there any groups of people um, that, that, that should be on alert, and how often should they go see their dermatologist for a skin exam? Sure. You know, so we talk about some of the risk factors for melanoma, which we've already touched on a little bit. So certainly anyone with a family history of melanoma and a, and a relative, uh, and, and by first-degree relative, we mean sort of mom, dad, brother, sister. Uh, certainly we recommend uh, those folks uh, get annual screening exams and, and certainly uh, starting maybe a little bit earlier, even sort of around puberty or shortly, shortly after puberty getting screening exams. Uh, patients uh, with fair skin, so light eyes and fair hair, uh, who uh, we know are at higher risk uh, for melanoma. But, uh, you know, I think it's really a good thing uh, for anyone uh, to, to be aware of. You know, melanoma uh, is one of the few cancers that's actually on the rise. Uh, and uh, early detection, I think, is so important that I'm really an advocate of uh, a screening exam for really, for really everyone. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. Uh, Louise, I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit more about what, what we started to talk about earlier in the show, and that is some of the exciting new treatments that are coming out for melanoma. Um, so I know that we are, are hearing this term immunotherapy, and we've also heard the term immuno-oncology. You know, so maybe you could tell us a little bit more, um, is there a difference between those two? What really are those? And just um, talk about some of the exciting new advances for melanoma. Well, there really is a lot of excitement in the area of new treatments for melanoma. Um, the immunotherapy angle is one of them, but I, um, I want to talk a little bit first about another set of tools, um, and these are the molecularly, so-called molecularly targeted agents. Um, when, you know, uh, in recent years, the melanoma treatment landscape has just improved dramatically. Beginning in 2011, the first new drugs were approved um, for the treatment of advanced melanoma that were approved in a really long time, and that included um, the first of these molecularly targeted drugs called vemurafenib, and that was aimed at a particular mutation which is present in about half of all uh, melanomas. And uh, at the same time, the first immunotherapy for melanoma was approved, and that's a drug called ipilimumab. And these two things really kind of helped to solidify the case for melanoma as um, an example of how new treatments can be brought forward for patients with all kinds of cancers. But 
you know, for, you go from 2011 to now, there were two additional treatments approved for treatment of this BRAF disease, this half of patients who have mutated BRAF, and that's, those treatments are dibrafenib and trametinib. And in addition, as we look at where we are um, right now, uh, and I would say poised to come into the end of 2014, beginning of 2015, there's a whole cadre of so-called immunotherapy drugs that are really showing their worth in um, tests in late-stage clinical development. So what does that mean? That means that when um, these drugs, which re-engage the immune system to recognize the cancer is foreign, are being um, used in people, you're seeing extremely remarkable um, numbers of people who respond and, in fact, um, fairly durable responses. That is, the, the inhibition of the cancer lasts for a pretty long time in those people who do respond. And it's, um, it's such an amazing change in melanoma with 40% of people for several years with just one of these drugs, so-called anti-PD-1 drugs. And when you use them in combination, the early data of the combination of ipilimumab and nivolumab to these sort of two um, marker drugs, it's really quite a phenomenal benefit. Um, maybe as many as 80% of people uh, showing a really marked response uh, to in their cancer. So can you say more for our listeners? I'd just like to break down your comments a little bit more. And we've done shows on personalized medicine, and we've also done shows on tissue collection and the importance of tissue collection and, and studying, you know, biomarkers and things. So in hearing you tar- talk about both molecularly targeted agents and immunotherapy, can you help our listeners understand um, what is there specific testing that would be done either on their tumor or through a blood test that, that would help the physicians identify which agents would be best for these patients so that they can make sure and, and ask or request that that type of testing be done? So in the area of immunotherapy specifically, which is this general field of re-engaging or harnessing the power of your own immune system to fight off the cancer, at this point in time, it's not completely clear whether patients with melanoma should have a particular test to say, oh, yes, definitely you're a candidate for immunotherapy or no, you are not. Um, from what we know so far, it's, um, we're not quite able to match, the, match melanoma patients to an immunotherapy that is of particular benefit to them or to rule them out. Okay. Um, in other cancers, in lung cancer, there's, uh, there's some thought that expression of a particular biomarker may actually improve your chances of responding to the immunotherapy. And indeed, that's actually true in melanoma. It's just that it's not, so, it's not the kind of uh, test that you would ever use to exclude anybody. It's not good enough in melanoma to say, oh, well, you definitely should skip the immunotherapy. It's not going to do anything for you. Not that strong yet. So more work is being supported by a number of people, including ourselves and our research pipeline, to really try to understand who should get these drugs for now, I, I think we have to just look at the promise of it for many, many patients until that data comes out. 
Okay, great. Thank you so much. Um, we are out of time for this segment. This is great information. We will be back for our final segment. And at that point in time, Donna, I'd like to talk about your your experience and what has led you to be an advocate and some of the things that you're doing to provide tools and resources to to patients. So I'd ask our listeners to please join us after the commercial break. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we will return with our final segment shortly. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're coming to the end of our show today on melanoma, which has been really an incredible and helpful conversation. So I'd like to just in advance thank um, our guests today, Louise Perkins, who is the Chief Science Officer at the Melanoma Research Alliance, and also April Salama, who is the Assistant Professor of Medicine and Associate Director of Melanoma Clinical Research at the Duke University Department of Medicine. And our third guest, who I would like to direct some of these early questions to in this segment, Donna Piant, who is a melanoma survivor and is the patient advisor for the Cancer Support Community's Cancer Experience Registry. So, Donna, could you just talk a little bit about your cancer diagnosis and the experience that you've had throughout your cancer journey, and how has that turned you into an advocate for others going through the melanoma experience? Uh, sure. Uh, well, as I had referred to earlier, I mentioned earlier, um, when I first was uh, diagnosed, um, 
I just really wanted to educate myself as far as what I was up against, knowing that I was at advanced stage. Um, at, when I was first diagnosed, I was stage uh, 2B, but then after testing and the surgery, uh, my wide excision, and I'd done at Fox Chase Cancer Center, um, you know, it was determined that when the pathology came back from that surgery, uh, I was advanced to stage 3B because it had spread to one of my lymph nodes. So then because of that, uh, I was referred to a medical oncologist, and um, I was advised to, to, you know, give an option to to either have, like, a a clinical trial, uh, just watch and wait kind of a thing with ultrasound, um, and or uh, doing a a sentinel, I mean, yeah, sentinel lymph node dissection. And that's what I opted to do because I just felt I just wanted to to be more aggressive with it. Uh, So... With that said, I, um, then they told me I needed to have some kind of form of chemo because of the advanced stage. And um, due to the, uh, my prior medical history, I wasn't able to uh, participate in the clinical trial of your voice um, because of the, of the problems with, you know, stomach issues. So I started my uh, interferon after 2B treatment. Um, I played a, a major role in, in, you know, investigating and understanding my, you know, how to better, you know, advance and, and for the best outcome for myself. And so I actually went online and um, watched two, Dr. Kirkwood uh, do two supporiums uh, presenting to oncologists. Um, so I, then I made my decision and, you know, and based on what the... uh, my medical oncologist had said, you know, we both came to an agreement, yep, the the interferon was the way to go. Um, So because of that, uh, 10 months I was able to handle the treatment. But during the treatment, um, I I was reaching out to other people and and watching YouTube videos, and I just felt like I really wanted to take the negative of my diagnosis and turn it into a positive and to, to raise awareness and to inspire and encourage uh, my fellow um, melanoma survivors uh, was was what I was. I've always wanted. I've always had that passion to help people, and so that's what I did. I I, I pretty much put my energy into that, uh, into raising awareness and and to encouraging and, and supporting my I call them warriors, <laughs> um, my fellow warriors. So. Um, that's how I, you know, that was started. But then from then on, I just went onto my Facebook page, and you know, because I didn't feel like I was getting enough, um, I was raising enough awareness through the, my YouTube videos that I had made, and it mm-hmm. just really was a big help for me um, to be able to um, distract myself while I was undergoing all the, the, you know, the very various symptoms that I was, uh, you know, having to overcome every day from the treatment. And so, so tell us about your Facebook page. It's called the Cancer Spot. Mm-hmm. Every and um, the Cancer Spot, meaning the pointing to my the spot that it started with the um, the mole, and then also it was a you know it's a place that people can come to for uh, to raise to really find out about melanoma uh, because I do an awareness on there um, and. Also, an inspire and and use humor through my treatment. When I was in uh, 
in the chair, receiving Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, uh, receiving my injections, and and uh, because it was so hard on my body, I literally was, had to take a, a liter of fluids uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday just to try to to keep my body up, you know, from the treatments and everything. So I was actually writing my post from the cancer, right from, right from the, uh, the the chemo chair, basically. Um, and uh, what I found was I was reaching out to people, and one day I, I posted, save me from, and I, you know, affectionately called them the needle Nazis because they were giving me the shots for the interferon, which would give me the, the horrible symptoms. And so someone came, uh, responded back and said, well, maybe if you disguise yourself. Well, that started the whole needle Nazi disguise, and so that was where the humor came in. Uh, I, I got a lot of response from that. People were just so, just made people laugh. And I was just, that's my personality to really, you know, look for the positive in things and, and try to just, I, I use my sense of humor to really um, get through it and helping others by raising awareness but also encouraging others really is, is always been my passion all my life. Well, thank you for, for doing that for, for, your, for oh. others. I'm, I'm sure that it's been a, a great response that you've been that you've been getting, and um, you know, we again love having you involved in the cancer experience registry, and look forward to to working together even more to help promote both of those um, efforts. April, I just wanted to, as we're coming on the close of the show, we've got about four minutes to close, and I wanted you to um, just talk quickly about um, recurrence. So, for the the patients who might be reading Donna's Facebook page, or for others, what precautions should they be taking if they've had one diagnosis of melanoma to make sure that they're protecting themselves? Yes, and so I think, you know, really the risk of recurrence of melanoma, you know, depends on your stage. And as, as Donna kind of talked about, uh, the, the plan is really tailored for you in terms of additional treatments and, and follow-up. And at Duke, uh, you know, in, in our clinic, that often means a combination of, of seeing dermatologists, maybe a surgeon, maybe a medical oncologist. Um, they may also be talking about getting CAT scans or, or other types of scans to, to kind of monitor. Um, and, and Louise has alluded to, you know, some of the newer treatments that we're now using to, to try to uh, prevent recurrence and, and reduce the risk of, of melanoma coming back. I think also the other thing that we need to think about is because people have developed one melanoma, they're still at risk for developing additional new melanomas. So that piece about uh, being sun smart and sun safe and wearing sunscreen and and continuing with annual skin exams um, is is more important than ever. So we encourage uh, people uh, to continue to follow up with their dermatologist and sometimes intensifying uh, the frequency of surveillance, uh, sometimes every three to six months, uh, and just keeping a close eye on things. Great. Thank you. And Louise, I just want to make sure that our listeners know how to reach you and the resources that you have. So for, for the Melanoma Research Alliance, individuals who are interested in learning more about your organization can visit www.curemelanoma.org, correct? That's right. Great. Thank you. And then I also want to encourage our listeners to check out Donna's Facebook page, which is The Cancer Spot, also for more information on this important um, issue. And I'd like to thank all three of our guests today for taking the time to talk with us about melanoma from both prevention through survivorship and resources that are available. Thank you, all three of you, for being here with us today. Thank you. 
You're welcome. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am Linda House, filling in for Kim Tebaldo, the President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. She will be back with you next week. I do want to extend the offer that if you have an idea for an episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer, we would invite you to please share those ideas with us and we'll bring topics to the show that you're interested in. You can send your ideas to us at news at cancersupportcommunity.org. At the Cancer Support Community, we provide a multitude of in-person and online and over-the-phone support. If you or someone you know is faced with a cancer diagnosis, you do not have to do it alone. For more information about our programs, including the Cancer Experience Registry that we've talked about today, please visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. You can find a location near you or you can have access to a a lot of different types of information there. You can also call our toll-free helpline at 1-888-793-9355 and speak directly with a licensed mental health professional Monday through Friday from 9 in the morning to 8 at night Eastern Time. Until the next time, be well, do well, and live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org.